This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're talking about weather patterns over the Southwest with Tony Merriman. You know, I was deathly afraid of thunderstorms when I was a child. That kind of transition from a fear to more of a an interest in the weather and learning more about it. That's the path I've taken. And it's just always been a part of my life as, as long as I can remember. Tony is now the warning coordinator meteorologist for the Flagstaff, Arizona National Weather Service. And we spoke with him about the processes behind weather in the Southwest, our increasing drought, and relationships him and his team have built with the Navajo Nation to discuss weather across languages and cultures. Anyone who lives here in the desert southwest knows the air is very dry, right? Our humidity is, mm-hmm. what would you say our average humidity here is, generally speaking? Is- it, it's pretty low. I mean, you know, relative humidity changes quite a bit from the morning to the afternoon. Uh, so we look at dew points quite a bit. And so we have pretty low dew points, uh, around a 30, 20 dew point in the higher deserts. Way back when, in the early 2000s, uh, monsoon season used to be defined by three consecutive days of a dew point of 55 or higher at the Phoenix airport. That's what monsoon season used to be defined as until it, it got changed to June 15th through September 30th. Oh, interesting. Why the change? Uh, consistency. Mm. And quite honestly, you know, uh, Phoenix is not the same as the rest of Arizona. So just using one point as a proxy for an entire state really isn't scientifically sound. So just like hurricane season has a defined season for consistency from year to year, uh, monsoon season also has a defined season every year. So it's June 15th through September 30th. Interesting. We generally, unless there's a storm above us, have a pretty low dew point. And so here we are, it's June. It's very dry here, but I still look out the window here in Moab where I am and I see clouds and I'm I'm wondering, like, where that moisture is coming from. Is that a is that a weird question? Like, when the air is so dry, how is it that we're still seeing puffy clouds forming above us? Uh, that's that's a great question. And actually, there are three main ingredients for clouds and thunderstorms to develop. And that's uh, without getting too much into detail, we need moisture which you already talked about. And then another mechanism called lift. And in the Southwest, we have what's called orographic lift. So that's when air is forced up into the atmosphere due to the terrain. So mountains, the Mogollon Rim down here, the San Francisco peaks, and uh, the, you know, the vast difference in terrain that you have in Southern Utah as well. So if the air has enough moisture in it, water vapor, and it gets forced up, into the atmosphere by a mountain range or or some kind of terrain feature, it can condense into clouds that we can see. So there's enough moisture in the mid-levels of the atmosphere to create these clouds, but uh, you're not getting much of any precipitation out of it. Okay, so that, that makes sense. So it's, it's these bigger patterns that we're looking at, bigger scale than just what we're experiencing here on the ground. You're talking about pressures from the Pacific, these different higher levels moving moisture around. Is that correct? Yeah. And it, you know, the atmosphere constantly is changing. You know, it's just dynamic because the earth is rotating. The atmosphere is a fluid. 
you get low pressures developing, you get high pressures developing. So the atmosphere is not stagnant at all. So your weather's different every day. So I was wondering if you could maybe just briefly walk us through the way that the, the these big scale patterns of weather are moving. So a scale at which the weather patterns are being affected by these global patterns, not just local patterns. And so our seasons are dictated primarily by the tilt of the earth and the orbit around the sun. So that's kind of the first concept for our seasons, at least in in the Northern hemisphere. Uh, Zooming in closer to let's say North America, what we're looking at is because of that shift in the sun angle with our seasons as we orbit the sun, we have what's called a jet stream that we look at. That's what storms generally ride along is the jet stream. And that is just a current of much faster wind way up in the atmosphere. So those jet streams is what a lot of the storms ride along. So during the summer months, that jet stream is displaced farther north. And with that, much bigger storm systems are across, let's say, Montana, the Dakotas, Minnesota. So June and July is their severe weather season. What that translates into in the Southwest is high pressure over Texas or New Mexico, and it wobbles. It could be centered over Arizona, but typically it's centered over New Mexico or North Texas. And with the flow around that high pressure, we can get southerly flow off the Gulf of California. So we get moisture and more thunderstorm activity during monsoon season. But as we transition into the winter season, that jet stream starts dipping farther south and uh, rain in the lower elevations. And then as we go through our winter season, we start going into spring and that jet stream starts going a little farther north again. And that's usually our windy season out here in the Southwest is during the spring months. And we start drying out because a lot of the storms also go north of here and we get drier weather. And as that jet stream keeps shifting farther north, uh, we get high pressure over New Mexico and North Texas dries us out in June. And then monsoon season starts up again, probably in July. So it's all due to the tilt of the earth and the orbit of the earth around the sun that we have our seasons and it's cyclical. You know, you're describing this jet stream and it sounds like with a lot of other factors involved, like how this jet stream oscillates definitely impacts how much rain we're going to get. But is that part of the main reason just where that jet stream happened to land that we are so dry here? Or are there other factors that make this a desert? The jet stream is one factor, but quite honestly, elevation is is the other primary factor and the Gulf of Mexico. So if you're off the foothills of the Rockies and you go east, there's significantly more precipitation east of the Rockies than along and west of the Rockies. And that's primarily due to a couple of factors. One, the proximity of the Gulf of Mexico. So there can be moisture surges from the Gulf of Mexico that um, go north into the Midwest and obviously the East Coast as well. But also because of our higher elevation, all of that moisture, if it were to seep into west of the Rockies, um, it'd have to go up 
uh, in elevation quite a bit. And so typically it's our higher terrain that keeps us dry in the Western Rockies. If you look at any dew point or relative humidity map of the United States, you could just see a big sharp cutoff right at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So that's our primary one is the elevation. I want to I want to dial a little bit more into the monsoons. So when we do get a monsoon, is the rain that's falling is the water that's falling from the Gulf of California is that an accurate statement to make? You know, it, it really depends on the pattern. It really does. There's actually four monsoonal uh, flow patterns that that we can have, but the most typical one is if we draw low-level moisture, let's say from the Gulf of California northward into, you know, northern Arizona, southern Utah. Yeah, that moisture source from the low levels typically from the Gulf of California. So, you know, we'll start seeing, let's say, dew points almost at 60 degrees in Tucson, which might be 50 degrees in Phoenix, which might translate to 40 degrees dew point in Flagstaff. So that's enough low-level moisture, and it's in the source region is the Gulf of California. And so uh, we monitor that every day, all the time. And the source region typically is the Gulf of California. So moisture from that all the way from Southern Arizona can easily precipitate into Utah. And so what are some of those variables that decide whether we're going to get a monsoon season here? It's primarily the the overall weather pattern and the position of what we call our mid-level high pressure and like I said, a good monsoonal flow, that center of that high pressure is over North Texas. That's really good monsoonal flow, but because the atmosphere changes every day, it's constantly changing. If that high pressure were to shift a little farther west and say become centered over New Mexico or even Arizona, which is what we saw last year, that uh, monsoonal flow actually would go up over the west coast of California and it's not precipitating over the Southwest. It's actually hot and dry. So wherever that center of high pressure is, that's where it's going to be hot and dry. That high pressure is sinking air and we need rising air to get thunderstorm activity. So the primary driver for monsoon season is the position of that high pressure and whether or not it's favorable for a monsoonal flow over the Southwest. What is it about this place that those pressure systems are causing the, the severity of the thunderstorms that we see with monsoons? The main thing that, that determines the intensity of thunderstorms is uh, something called wind shear, and that has to do with the jet stream. And the jet stream, like I said, during the summer months is displaced farther north. So you might see more severe storms in the northern plains and the east coast. But in terms of the monsoon season in the Southwest, because just the amount of moisture that we can get in a short life cycle that we can get of these thunderstorms, it can rain out quite a bit uh, in a short period of time. That's called rainfall rate. And so when you have a high rainfall rate in rugged terrain, flash flooding is a big issue. Whenever it rains on rocks or even post-fire burn scars, all of that rain runs off into creeks and streams and valleys. The storms generally out here in the, in the Southwest, they're called single cell or multi-cell clusters. And, you know, they have their updraft and downdraft, typical 
of any place in the United States, but the impacts are much higher out here because because of the rocky terrain and the flash flood threat. The other threat with uh, you know dust storms, uh, downburst winds, because of the nature of our atmosphere and the low levels being as dry as they are, uh, we can get a lot more downburst winds that can cause you know wind damage. Or even in Phoenix, um, you know you get the the dust storms or the haboobs that reduce visibility and uh, can cause a lot of traffic issues. So then, yeah, in the short term, you know, we are, there's not a lot of water falling here in the, in the Southwest in this, in this last year, we've seen, you know, not a lot of precipitation. What are some of the short term implications for the lack of, of moisture that we've had here? Some drought impacts uh, that we've seen being more serious talks about water restrictions. I, I do believe a lot of the ranchers, the wells that they get their water from for cattle and livestock is, it's a lot lower than these ranchers have seen in, in their in their lifetimes. So last two monsoon seasons have been very, very dry. And so we're hoping, and the outlook is showing at least an equal chance for uh, some semblance of a monsoon season beginning in July. So hopefully we could get a, a good monsoon season this year to recharge some of those water tables. But again, you know, kind of the, the long-term effects of not having enough water from monsoon season or even winter season, we're starting to see that with, with any kind of water restrictions or low water tables uh, recently. I'm wondering if there are feedback loops to precipitation. So like if the land itself is so dry and like we're really seeing, you know, even less moisture in in the soil than we've seen in the past or even in in lakes like Lake Powell, like is that going to feed back to how dry the air is and make even less rainfall? Primarily everything's driven by large scale patterns. And so if there, let's say the earth is very parched and, and fuel conditions are very dry, then a lot of that low level moisture, say from the Gulf of California, has to overcome the heat and the dryness that's already in place. So a lot of that low level water vapor could evaporate uh, before it gets lifted and condenses into a thunderstorm. So again, to what degree that that's the case, I'm not really sure. But there is some relation, but I don't know if it's a huge relation. I would think it more it's more driven by large-scale patterns, um, but it's a non-zero relationship for sure. Cool. You mentioned that you know your monitoring is indicating that we might get some monsoons coming. I was wondering if you could walk us through how how you are able to look that far ahead. What What is your crystal ball to be able to predict if we're going to get monsoons this year? Our sister agency in the Weather Service, it's the Climate Prediction Center in Washington, D.C., and they do the climate predictions for three-month time periods. So June, July, August, July, August, September, August, September, October, and so forth. So they go out 12 months with those three-month climate predictions. And so what they're looking at are a couple of things. One is uh, recent trends. They also look at larger scale oscillations. So like El Nino is an oscillation. It's actually, it's ENSO, El Nino, El Nino Southern Oscillation. So part of that 
oscillation is also La Nina. So they look at those climate oscillations. They look at the North at North American oscillation, the NAO, the Arctic oscillation, the AO. So these large scale, I'm going to call them weather patterns, but they're actually climate patterns that they look at to try to forecast out 12 months. And so based off of those oscillations and recent trends, the good people at the Climate Prediction Center do come out with three-month outlooks, and it's based on a three-month average, whether there's a strong signal indicating below average precipitation or equal chances or signals showing wetter than average condition. And if there's no strong signal, there's going to be equal chances of either precipitation or temperatures. And when I say equal chances, I mean equal chances of above average, near average, or below average. So I know that's not a satisfactory answer, but that's climate prediction. And right now we have equal chances of above, near, and below average precipitation forecast for monsoon season. I just wanted to finish up by um, hearing a little bit more about this project where that you've worked or, you know, your colleagues worked on. It was a project with the Diné or politically the Navajo Nation uh, making cloud charts that incorporated uh, Navajo language into weather terms. Can you tell us about that project? Yeah, absolutely. There is a school in Flagstaff called Puente de Hoso. And they are a trilingual public school that teach in Navajo, they teach in Spanish, and they teach in English. And since I'm the outreach coordinator for Northern Arizona, um, we already have cloud charts available in both English and Spanish. And it was interesting because as I was going to this school to do a school talk about the water cycle, our administrative assistant asked me if I needed anything else before I left. And I was like, yeah, if I could get a cloud chart in Navajo, that'd be, that'd be wonderful. Cause that would meet the needs of all the students at this school. And so that gave her the idea to utilize the Noah Hollings scholarship program, which is available to anyone who's interested in weather or anything Noah related. That scholarship program is available through the Office of Education for any college student to pursue and get paid internships at a either, a, in my case, a weather service office or even a, a NOAA-affiliated place. And so we put that project out there to create a Navajo weather poster. And basically, we worked with Navajo Nation to try to get people to help us translate, to design. And we worked very closely with the tribes to make sure that we had accurate words for different weather phenomena and that we were keeping in with the traditions of Navajo Nation as well. So it was a big project. Really glad that we did it. You know, we're looking forward to working with eventually maybe the Hopi tribe or White Mountain Apache tribe to also learn more about their culture and how their culture views weather and uses nature to actually predict the weather for the upcoming season. Thank you again so much for your time here. It's been very interesting getting to talk to you about the weather that we have down here in the Southwest. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 
To learn more or listen to more Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spalding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.